0: in the second week of our message mini-series called In the Valley, and this is a series where we're focusing in on how to find real hope in some of life's most difficult seasons. Last week we tackled the subject of why suffering exists and why God seems to allow it, and if you missed that, I want to encourage you to listen to that message online because each message in this series really builds upon the one that came before it. This week, we're gonna look at the issue of what to do on the worst day of your life, that moment when the hurricane hits, the bottom falls out, and you're left just trying to catch your breath. In that moment, on that day, what do you do? And we're talking specifically about that day, not the next day or the next week or the next month. We're actually gonna talk about how to walk through that next week. Today, we're talking about that day. Day. What do you do on the worst day of your life? And I want to be very upfront and say that there's no benefit to us comparing each other's worst days. Pain and difficulty are relative concepts. So the worst day of someone's life might make you sort of need to turn away and laugh and snicker to yourself because you've been through something so much worse. But to them, it's relative. It really may be the worst day of their life. And I'm not standing up here leading this study because I am claiming that I have had the worst day. Oh, it's so much worse than anything you've ever had. That's not what I'm saying. My goal in this study is to point you and I to Jesus because on his worst day, he was tortured He was beaten, spat upon, mocked, crucified, and deserted by practically everyone he knew and loved, and left to die on the cross. And Jesus has the authority to claim that his worst day was worse than yours, and it was worse than any day you'll ever face in this life. So we're going to listen to the words of Jesus because he knows what he's talking about. I mentioned this verse last week. I'm going to mention it again now. I'll probably mention it again next week because it's that good. I put it on your outline. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't know what you're going through. And I don't know what you're gonna go through in the future. Nobody really does, except Jesus. And if there's one overarching principle, one great truth that I hope we grasp from this whole message mini-series, it's that our response to difficulty can be and should be to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think it's important to be honest and acknowledge that when that moment comes, when you get the news or have the realization that this is the worst day of your life, the last thing that goes through your mind is, okay, what are the next three things I need to do in response to this sudden and unexpected trauma? You're not gonna think that way, I'm not gonna think that way, which is why the first thing we need to do, you can put this on your outline, the first thing we need to do is grieve. First thing you need to do is grieve, is allow yourself to feel the gravity of what is happening in that moment that is making this day so difficult. You don't need to think about anything else other than allowing yourself to grieve. One of the greatest miracles Jesus performed during his earthly ministry was raising the dead. And one of the people he raised from the dead was one of his closest friends, a man named Lazarus. And news of Lazarus being close to death reached Jesus when he was in another town. And Jesus didn't rush to Lazarus' side. We know that that's because Jesus was being led by the Holy Spirit and there was a plan that Jesus would raise him from the dead but Jesus was the only one who knew that. The Holy Spirit was setting this thing up. So when Jesus reaches Bethany, where Lazarus' family lives, he's approached by Mary, the sister of Lazarus and another good friend of Jesus's. And this is what the Bible says happened. I put it on your outline. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned, underline groaned in the spirit and was Troubled, underline troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept, underline wept. And what hits me about this is Jesus knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that. He's not thinking, oh, this is just too bad. And yet he's still moved. He still mourns over the pain and suffering that the death of Lazarus has caused Lazarus' loved ones, his family, his friends. He's moved over the pain and suffering caused by the effect of our sin on our world. Jesus, who is the exact representation of the Father in heaven, Jesus who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that Jesus understands that the greater truth of his power over death doesn't change the pain that it causes in the moment. And I love that Jesus doesn't chide everyone there for their lack of faith or quickly say, you guys shouldn't be mourning. You got nothing to cry about. My father's still on his throne. Jesus doesn't do that, even though that's true. Jesus understands that even the greater truths about the future of every believer, about his coming victory over death, do not negate the pain and suffering that we have to go through while we wait for the fulfillment of those things. When someone dies or something awful happens, it's okay to be devastated. Jesus does not expect you to paste a fake smile on your face and tell everyone you're doing great because you know that Jesus is still in charge. That's true, but he doesn't expect you to do that. He understands that that reality doesn't change the fact that it hurts in that moment, it hurts. If you know the Lord, those truths about where they are, about who Jesus is, about how he holds the world and how he holds the future, if you're a believer, those truths are gonna come back to you in the coming days, weeks, months, and even years. But it's okay to just grieve first. It's okay to just be devastated. Jesus understands and he doesn't look on disapprovingly asking you why you're in grief when his father's still on the throne. He understands that it hurts. The First thing you need to do is grieve. And then when your life is struck by something terrible, the thing that normally follows the intense and immediate overwhelming grief is the question, why? We begin this search for meaning, this search for understanding, to comprehend what has caused this to happen, why, how can this happen? And even for those who love the Lord, the question often becomes, why did the Lord let this happen? What's the meaning of this? And that questioning may take place in a sense of hopelessness or even anger. And often some well-intentioned believer will come along in an attempt to be encouraging and say something to the effect of, you know, the Lord has a reason for everything. And in doing that, you know that they're implying that God somehow wanted this to happen or that it happened as part of some divinely orchestrated plan. It's essentially the belief that everything happens for a reason. You know, the problem with that is you can read the Bible from cover to cover and you won't find that anywhere in there. It doesn't say that everything happens for a reason. In fact, let me be blunt, the only people who hold on to the belief that everything happens for a reason are people who have never been adequately confronted by the sheer evil that exists in the world. Because on any given day, you can go and read the news and there will be things in there that no reasonable person could read, come to understand, and then conclude, I'm sure there's a reason for this. I'm sure there's meaning to this. You can't be confronted by some of the evil that exists in our world and comfort yourself by saying, I'm sure it's all part of a good plan, good plan. Last week, we talked about the reality of pain and suffering and the great truth that those things only exist in our world because our world is fallen, our world has rejected God. So in other words, pain and suffering, just to recap last week, don't exist because God willed them to exist. They exist because man collectively rejected God in Eden, And every man since Adam and Eve has in their own way rejected God. Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. So we need to be very careful about giving God credit for terrible things that were not caused by him, but were caused by the fact that we live in a broken world. We brought sin into our world when we gave ownership of our world to Satan And the fundamental reason why people die of cancer is because disease came into the world when man rejected God. And God has to allow us generally to experience the natural consequences of our sin. Or else he would be removing free will. Again, if you're not tracking with me, listen to last week, it'll make more sense, I promise. All that to say that almost all tragedy, almost all tragedy is not due to the will of God, but rather the natural consequences of us living in a world that has rejected God. As hopeless as this truth sounds, it's vital that we understand it because if we don't, we will find ourselves angry with God and blaming God for what our own sin has brought into the world. And God doesn't deserve any of the blame. When the unbeliever searches for meaning in a great tragedy, if they're honest, they will find none. How are you gonna find meaning in 9-11? How are you gonna find meaning in that? But what a different story it is for the believer. What a different story it is for the believer. Because you see, when a believer loses their earthly life, they step into eternal life, real life, for the first time. When the believer goes through suffering and pain and difficulty, they have the opportunity to honor God in a trial. They have an opportunity to experience a little bit of what Jesus experienced when he died and suffered for every one of us. Every believer in difficulty has the opportunity to prove to those looking on that the hope we have in Jesus is real. And not only that, but then we are rewarded for that in eternity. God gives meaning and significance and purpose to even the suffering of the believer, The believer doesn't receive the promise that everything happens for a reason. But you know what the believer does receive? The believer receives the promise of Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good to those who love God. Do you understand that's not a promise that everything happens for a reason. That is a promise from God that even when we experience the brokenness of this world that causes pain and difficulty and suffering, even when we go through that as a believer, God will do something good in that and through that. He will do something meaningful out of that. A meaningless death, God will do something good out of that. He will give it meaning. He will do something good in it, through it. That's what God does. He redeems even the tragic things that happen in life. That's the promise to the believer. God says, I'll do something good even in the midst of the worst tragedy. I'll find a way to do good in it. Not that he caused the tragedy, but he will do good out of it. In contrast, the suffering of the non-believer is meaningless. This is a profound truth. The suffering of the non-believer is meaningless. They're not necessarily learning anything. They're not becoming a better person. They're not gaining eternal rewards. They're just suffering in a broken world. In summary, the second thing we need to do on the worst day of our lives is recognize that the why, you can write this down, the why is probably not God, but the natural consequences of humanity's rejection of God. The pain and the tragedy we feel is most likely not some amazing divine orchestrated plan, but we're just feeling the natural consequences of living in a world that's rejected God. And I say probably not God because I wanna leave room for God to do something we don't understand. If it was God doing something, then we can trust that he had a loving reason for doing what he did. I wanna leave room for God to be good and allow somebody to experience a quick death when he knows there may have been a very slow one coming from disease. I wanna give God the room to do that because I think sometimes he's gracious in ways that we do not understand and won't understand this side of eternity. If God was involved, we can trust it was for our good. So hopefully on the worst day of our lives, we're, we're allowing ourselves to grieve, just to feel the weight of what's happened. Hopefully, we're not blaming God in that moment. Thirdly, make a note of this. We need to resist the urge to panic over tomorrow. We need to resist the urge to panic over tomorrow. In Lamentations, we read this wonderful promise. It's on your outlines. It says, through the Lord's mercies we're not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. Do you know why God's mercies and God's compassions are new every morning? Do you know why? Because they're tailor-made for that specific day. God in his goodness knows exactly what you're gonna face that day. And that is a promise from his word that he has grace for you, he has mercy for you, he has compassion for you, tailor-made for that day for that exact day and he's going to be faithful to give you the strength that you need for that day even on the worst day of your life he's going to give you the strength to cling to him just to hold on to him even when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray he's sharing with them what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer he tells them to ask for their needs this way give us this day our daily bread our daily bread Jesus doesn't tell them to worry for tomorrow He doesn't say, hey, there's no harm in asking for tomorrow's bread, too. He doesn't tell them to worry about next week or next month or next year because Jesus knows that tomorrow, his heavenly Father is going to give them everything they need for tomorrow. And Jesus' counsel to his disciples was ask your Father to provide you with what you need for today, your practical needs the wisdom you need for today, the strength you need for today. God knows the decisions you're going to have to make today. He knows the plans that you're going to have to make decisions on today. He knows the people you're going to interact with. He knows the difficulties you're going to be confronted with. And he wants to give you what you need for today. Jesus' counsel to his disciples was ask your heavenly father for what you need for today. And then tomorrow you can ask him for what you need tomorrow. There's such wisdom in that because we talked about this recently. Worry about tomorrow can be suffocating. Suffocating. I remember the day I got the phone call from Charlene where she said, I have cancer. I remember. All those thoughts that come rushing through your mind so fast. And I always describe it to people. It's like your brain just becomes this machine churning out hypotheticals. Usually the worst case scenario of everything. And these thoughts are just hitting you faster and faster than you can even get a hold on them. They're just rushing into your mind like they're barreling down an enormous tube and hitting you with full force. It's overwhelming. And then after those few minutes of that, where you can't even control it. You have a choice to make and you either allow your fears to dominate your mind or you remember what Jesus said, it's on your outlines too. He said, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, today has enough trouble for today. And on the worst day of your life, today will have enough trouble For today, I guarantee it. You don't need to load yourself up with thinking about tomorrow. You need to just be in that moment on that day, asking God for strength for that day because he hasn't built you with the ability or the capacity to worry about more without being overwhelmed. So remember that. Don't allow panic about tomorrow to consume you. And then fourthly, make a note of this. Simply remember that Jesus is with you. Remember that he's with you. And and I wanna share this in the most non-cheesy, most real way I can. But Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I'm with you always. I'm with you always. And through the Holy Spirit, the very presence of Jesus is with us. The Holy Spirit is the one that Jesus called the comforter, the counselor. And he told his disciples it would be better for them that he leave the earth because if he left the earth, the Holy Spirit would come. And Jesus was saying, unlike me, who can only be with one of you or a group of you at a time, the Holy Spirit is with you always, always. What a staggering thing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate on the earth, would say to his disciples, it is better for you that I go because the Holy Spirit is coming and he's always gonna be with you and that's better for you. That's an astounding, astounding thing. The Holy Spirit is God. God in us and he is wonderful he's a faithful friend he's a wise counselor he's the best listener he's everything and when you are grieving when you are angry and you're misdirecting that anger at God the Holy Spirit doesn't leave he just stays quietly with you until you're done venting and when you're done he doesn't say a single word at the wrong time He just puts his arms around you to let you know he's there And when that's all you can handle, that's all he does, lets you know he's there. When you've recovered a little bit of strength, he begins to minister to you, reminding you of the truths you've read in God's word, the things God has shared with you through Bible studies and messages. He begins to minister to you. God never leaves you, he never forsakes you. Through the Holy Spirit, he's present with you in all of your suffering. Just because you don't hear him saying anything doesn't mean he's not there. He just wants you to know that he's with you. He's gracious to you when you're a mess. He's gentle and patient and above all, he's faithful and he'll be faithful on the worst day of your life. Those are four things that I think are helpful for us to remember on the worst day of our lives and they really will make a difference. But as I was thinking and praying about today's message, I realized I'd be doing all of us a disservice if I didn't share the truth that how you and I handle the worst day of our lives will probably be impacted more by how we've lived in the days leading up to that day than by anything we do on that day. So let me say this another way. This is really hard to find a way to say this in a concise manner, but I think you get the idea. You can write this down. How we handle the worst day of our lives will be more greatly impacted by how we have lived the days that came before it than by anything we do on that day. On that day. Let me give a simple analogy. If I decide that I'm going to run a marathon this August this August. Will my performance in that marathon be more impacted by the decisions and choices I make on the day of the marathon, or the decisions and choices I make in the days that come before the marathon? Will my performance be more affected by the breakfast I eat that day, the shoes I wear, the type of water bottle I choose, or will my performance be more affected by how I trained in the days, weeks, and months leading up to that day? The answer is obvious. How I trained in the days, weeks, and months leading up to the marathon. Why, because I can't just flick a switch and become a marathon runner on the day of the marathon. And the same is true in life. When the worst day of your life hits, you will be the person you were when you went to bed the night before. That's who you'll be. You won't wake up a giant of the faith if that's not what you were when you went to bed the night before. You won't wake up a different person. The person you are on that day will be the sum total of the beliefs, decisions, and relationships you have had and made in the days leading up to that day. So specifically, I want us to look at three areas that I believe every believer has to settle. These have to be settled issues in our lives long before we reach the worst day of our lives. Firstly, make a note of this. God's word God's word. We need to settle this issue. Psalm 119.89 declares forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And I love that verse. I love that verse because it's saying, listen, whether you believe it or not, God's word is settled in heaven. Everything that he said he's going to do, he's going to do. Everything he said is true, is true. It's not just true on earth, it's true in heaven. It's a settled issue there whether you're on board with it or not. So when it comes to you and I, the question is, is God's word a settled issue for me? Is his word a settled issue for me? Have I come to the place where I believe everything his word says? Have I come to the place where I've built my life upon what it says? When I see something in his word that doesn't line up with my life, I change my life, rather than just ignoring the word of God. Have we reached the place where his word is a settled issue for you and I? Because if we haven't, we're fooling ourselves if we think that on the worst day of our lives, we're suddenly gonna become men and women who stand on the word of God in our hour of crisis. If God's word is a settled issue in my life, I will find incredible comfort and strength when the bottom falls out of my life. If God's word is not a settled issue in my life, if I'm not sure I really believe everything in it, then its promises will have the same effect on me as someone saying, just remember what Papa Smurf said, always keep your chin up. That's not helpful, is it? Papa Smurf isn't gonna help you on the worst day of your life. It's gonna be meaningless. But if you've built your life on the word of God, if you've put your faith in it, if you've seen it prove itself true over and over and over again, then you're gonna find some real promises to hold on to on the worst day of your life. But we have to decide. God's word is settled in heaven. Is it settled in you and I? Secondly, we need to settle the issue of God's character. You can write that down, God's character. We talked at length last week about how God is only ever good. He's a good father who loves and who cares for his children. Is the character of God a settled issue in your life? Or do you believe that God is only good when things are going good in your life? Have you come to the point where you're so overwhelmed by what Jesus did for you on the cross, that there is nothing and no one that could ever change your mind of the truth that God is good, he's good. Psalm 34 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Have you gotten deep enough into God's word, deep enough into a relationship with Jesus to be able to say for yourself, I've tasted and I've seen, God is good, he's good. Or does your view of God function like a weather report? Let's see, we got some trauma over here, some difficulty over here, some chaos over here. Today's forecast says God is not good. How do you view the goodness of God? Is it a settled issue, an established fact, or is it simply a temporary state of affairs that is dictated by the conditions in your life? Settle that issue today. Because God doesn't deserve to be doubted. He's only ever been faithful. He's only ever been good to you. He's only ever taken care of you and I. Settle that issue today. And lastly, we need to settle the issue of faith. We need to settle the issue of faith. We need to choose to live as men and women of faith long before the worst day of our life ever arrives. And I'm fond of saying this because it's true. When the crisis hits, the faith you have is the faith you have. There's no magical switch that you can turn on to suddenly become a mighty man or woman of faith when the crisis hits. And that's because faith builds upon faith. Let me say it again. Faith builds upon faith. When you become a believer, you make the decision to submit your life to the lordship of Jesus. That simply means you agree he's gonna call the shots. He's gonna set the agenda in your life. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And as you learn how God wants you to live by studying his word, you do your best to obey the things that you learn and you see in his word because you love him and you wanna serve him. And as you obey God, you begin to see God blessing the areas of your obedience as you obey him in the area of your work ethic, you begin to see God blessing that area of your life. As you obey him in the marriage relationship, you begin to see God blessing your marriage, parenting, money, every area. And as you see that, it builds your faith as you begin to experience these little victories as you obey God. And it causes you to trust him more and more and trust him with greater and greater things. Faith builds upon faith. When Joshua leads the children of Israel into the promised land, the first battle they face is Jericho, one city. And to them, this is overwhelming. They don't even understand how they could possibly experience victory over a city as impressive as Jericho. But God moves, they obey, and they take the city. And as they go through the promised land, they go through step after step, and every step is an increasing step of faith. They go through more cities, More armies at the same time. Till at the very end, they're confronting an army the Bible describes as being as numerous as the sand on the seashore. There's a reason the Lord didn't have them start where they finished. There's a reason. And that reason is they would not have had the faith to believe God could give them victory over that many armed men when they started. But when they had been through this step, then this step, This step. By the time they reached the end, it wasn't an overwhelming step of faith. It was just the next step of faith. It was just the next step. And they were able to say, well, I assume God will come through like he has every other time. Remember Jericho? Remember these five cities? Remember these 10 armies? Yeah, this is just the next thing. And so the way you build faith in your life and in my life is by simply saying yes to God every time he calls you to trust him. And you don't have to worry. God has an infinite number of ways of asking you the question, do you trust me? Every time the Lord asks you that question, respond with yes, and you'll build faith upon faith upon faith. When you or I say no to trusting God, our faith stalls out. And we don't get to skip that step of faith. We just stay there. If faith is a ladder and we get up here and God says, I want you to trust me with this, and we go, no, We don't skip up to the next level. We just stay there. Most believers will hit some sort of level and they'll just stay there the rest of their lives. That's really boring. Really, really boring. What is exciting is to see God move in your life Allow you to experience victory and blessings that you could never imagine because you keep saying yes to him. I like to give the analogy, but it's a bad analogy because it involves gambling. But the idea is that you go all in with God. And the first time God asks you to go all in, we always think that we're going all in with everything we have. But after a while, we look back and go, that wasn't really that big of a step I took at the beginning. But we thought we were trusting God with everything. God allows us to experience victory, gives us more. Why does he give us more? So that we will have more to go all in with the next time. And that's the process God wants to work in our life over and over and over, is not to get us to a certain level where we can go, you know, I've gone in with God enough times that now I'm secure, my life is blessed, so now I I can sort of end this faith journey. God would say, no, I've only given you more so that you can trust me with more and see me do more. You do not want to stall out in your growth faith. You don't want to stall out as your faith grows. On the worst day of your life, you're gonna need faith. You're gonna need faith. And in the days and weeks and months that follow, you're gonna need faith, especially if you want to believe God for a miracle. James 1.6 says, He who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So let me get real uncomfortable and personal. One of the most painful things that I sometimes have to witness as a pastor and just as a believer is people who find themselves in a storm, an incredibly difficult season of life where where they need a miracle. But if I'm honest, I know they've been saying no to God an awful lot when the Lord has asked them, will you trust me? And if I'm honest, I know specific areas of their life where they know what God has called them to do and they've just said, no, not gonna do that. Not gonna trust God with that. And they haven't been building faith. And even though I can't tell them, I know the reality is they don't have the faith to partner with God for a miracle. They don't have the faith because they haven't trusted him with something this small. And now they wanna believe that they have the faith to trust God to do something this big. That's not how faith works. If we haven't trusted God when he says that sex belongs in marriage or that if we save ourselves from marriage, we'll be alone forever. If we haven't trusted God with dollars and cents when he calls us to tithe. If we haven't trusted God when he says don't worry about tomorrow. If we haven't trusted him with relatively simple things, we're fooling ourselves if we think we have the faith to believe God can heal cancer. We don't, we don't. When the crisis hits, the faith you have is the faith you have. And some of you, you know this story. When Charlene got cancer, we'd been building faith upon faith upon faith. Not because we're amazing people, but because God allowed us to be in a church that taught faith, encouraged faith, modeled faith, and we were in a culture of faith. And so when that moment came, we were ready for it. We were ready for it however it turned out. As ready as you can be. Because we'd been building faith upon faith upon faith. And we weren't overwhelmed with fear during that season. We weren't overwhelmed with fear. I told my church that Sunday when we got the news and told them I look forward to being able to stand up in front of you in a few months and tell you that Charlene's cancer free. And we got to do that. We got to do that. Because we got to be in a culture of faith around people who encouraged us to always say yes to God. And so I wanna encourage you to decide now that you're gonna live that way. So that you can know on the worst day of your life, you're ready, you're ready, you'll get through it. Who God is is a settled issue. That you trust God with your life and everything else is a settled issue. That his word is true is a settled issue. I've had the honor of knowing believers who have settled those issues and I've watched their lives get hit by some huge storms, devastating things and yet because I knew those things were settled issues for them, I never worried about their faith, ever. I never worried about whether or not they were gonna be okay. I never worried about them losing their minds or taking their lives because I knew that at the end of the day, under all the tears and brokenness, they had an unshakable faith in who God is. And nothing was going to shake that. I knew they were going to be okay. And I want that for all of us. I want that for every single one of us. If any of our lives gets hit by unimaginable tragedy tomorrow. I want us to be there for one another because we're the church. But to pray and to just grieve together. But I don't want any of us to have to be there because we're worried that the other person might not make it. That they might lose their faith. That they might take their life. I want those things to be settled issues so that we can all know of each other where we're gonna be okay. We're gonna go through some very difficult things in life, but we've settled who God is. We've settled that his word is true and we've settled that we can trust him. I want that for all of us. I want that for my kids. I want that for your kids. I want us to be examples of that to each other and to the world around us. God's word will still be true on the worst day of your life. God will still be good on the worst day of your life. And if you live by faith now, you'll have the faith you need to get through the worst day of your life. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that everything we love about you, your goodness, your kindness, your faithfulness, everything we love about you will still be true on the worst day of our lives. It will still be true. Lord, your word is settled in heaven. May it be settled in us, Lord God, that there is nothing we could experience in life that would cause us to have a faith that can be shaken because we know that what your word says is true. You never leave us. You never forsake us you will do good even in the midst of tragedy. And Father, help us to choose to live as people of faith right now. God, I pray just for each of us, if there's an area of our lives where we've been saying no to you, and we know that you're calling us to say yes to trusting you, help us to say yes today. Help us to keep moving forward in faith, not to stall out, but to keep trusting you with the things that are most precious to us. To keep believing that those things are safer in your hands than in ours. Help us to say yes to you, God, over and over and over again. And Lord, maybe it's been a while since we've heard you ask us to trust you with something. Lord, if that's because we've just turned a deaf ear to what you're asking us to do, Would you speak once again through your Holy Spirit with clarity this morning to us that we might say yes to you and that our lives might be a witness to the fact that you are trustworthy, God. You are trustworthy, Jesus. Lord, we bless you and we love you. You're only ever good. You're worthy of our trust and your word is true.